Hey everybody, it's Dan from The Overrun. Uh, we have a really great interview today. Uh, one of the real thought leaders in emergency medicine and EMS medicine, Dr. Mark Merlin. Uh, he is the chair of the residency program at North Beth Israel in Newark, New Jersey. He is also the leader of one of the largest EMS physician fellowships in the country. Uh, you can find him on social media uh, on Facebook at EMS and Disaster Fellowship, uh, emsfellowship.com, uh, and also on Twitter at MD1 Program and Crit Care Anywhere. Uh, all those will be in the show notes. Uh, he is a amazingly intelligent man and has a lot of information um, for paramedics, EMTs, and uh, anybody in pre-hospital care. Uh, we were lucky to get him. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to give you to Dr. Mark Merlin in my interview with him. So enjoy. I've got an interview today with uh, Dr. Mark Merlin, who's the chair of the New Jersey EMS Council and the Office of Emergency Medical Services. He's the residency director of the uh, North Beth Israel Emergency Medicine Program. Uh, and uh, he is uh, one of the thought leaders um, in the uh, U.S. and when it comes to emergency medicine. So uh, thanks for uh, coming out and talking to us today. Thanks for having me. This is great. Um, you know, Dr. Merlin, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but you were a volunteer EMT and a paramedic. I was. I was in New Jersey. I was something called Five Points, which I have to, it goes back a few years, but this was the early 80s. So this was like childbirth, extrication, uh, CPR, defensive driving. And then it became eight points. Then I was an EMT and then I was a, a paramedic. Um, so I started my career out on the road um, full time. And then I, I worked as a college student as a paramedic in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, so we were an all ALS system and we used to run, I used to work uh, eight hours and we would have shifts rotating. So every three months I would miss all of my college classes. Not something I would recommend to anybody. But I, w I worked on the street for years. I used to be able to put an IV in almost anybody, and now I can't do it for anyone. So it's kind of funny. Um, so what, what do you think? Because uh, there are people out there, and this is a growing thing, where you're seeing EMS clinicians, EMTs, paramedics going on to medical school, taking that next step, and uh, going to the next level. What, what did you find were some of the pearls and pitfalls of you, of you starting out in the back of the ambulance, so to speak. You know, so I, I, like everybody else, I needed mentorship. And unfortunately, there weren't too many people around at that point in my career in the 80s who were EMS physicians, which is what I call myself. People say, what do you do for a living? I say, it's complicated, but I'm basically a doctor for the paramedics. I'm more a doctor for EMS. So it's, it's difficult to describe, but we are EMS physicians are a young specialty, right? And I knew when I was younger that I wanted to do something in medicine that also was involved with pre-hospital care. But nobody knew what that could be. In fact, so many people along the way told me, don't get involved in EMS. There's no future in it for, as a physician. <laughs> but I always knew for me, I wanted to do something different than be a paramedic on the road. I, I needed some other form of education. And when I was young, I didn't know what that was going to be exactly. Uh, but I had a lot of people who said, don't stay involved in EMS. And I never listened to any of them. You know, I started out as, a, like I said, a five-pointer, an EMT, a, um, I went through all the courses, I became an ACLS instructor. I had a few interesting mentors, but nobody really in emergency medicine or pre-hospital care. So I took a few different paths that weren't the traditional ones. Um, but you know, I like mentoring young people now, so people need to be mentored early on when they're EMTs, when they're paramedics, when they're just starting medical school. And if you can mentor people early on, you will get them to go through the, a direct career path instead of you know all, all the way around it. And I've taken on so many roles because, um, you know, there's very few people who have 10, 15, 20 years experience as EMS physicians who can take on these roles. I mean, me, for example, you know, I do a lot of different things. One is you mentioned um, the chair of the state EMS committee. We have 34 separate committees uh, relative to pre-hospital care in New Jersey. So I'm the chair of the committee that oversees all 34 committees um, under the Department of Health. So anybody wants to get involved with EMS in our state, um, this is the committee to go to or any of the 34 subcommittees like BLS, Emergency Nursing Association, uh, Trauma Committee, New Jersey Poison Inf Information. So we have no, in New Jersey, as you know, we have no state medical directors. So this is the closest you can get um, being the chair of this committee. And then I'm chief medical officer for, uh, for Monarch and system medical director for Monarch, two different positions, which provides um, 
ALS care to the two very large uh, healthcare systems, uh, the Robert Johnson Barnabas system and the uh, Hackensack Meridian and Center State. And then I'm the medical director for the state police SWAT team. So we have uh, an EMS doc in an unmarked vehicle who goes to every state police uh, no-knock, a knock-announce, or barricade in the state of New Jersey 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we run the largest physician response program in the country. We have six physician vehicles, which are full operating room and emergency department on wheels, which have everything you can imagine, from transesophageal echo devices to every video laryngoscopy uh, device on the market, I think, to about 60 different medications, uh, to Kevlar vests, uh, full operating room emergency departments, and they go in about 30 responses per week. And, um, and then I'm chief medical officer. I do a lot of fixed wing air ambulance stuff. So besides having a rotary system, we have a fixed wing. I'm the medical director of a company called Medway, which is a big in-network provider. There's about 120 flights a month of fixed wing. And then we do a lot of flights through other companies um, that a medical director of for like a, for a power flight, um, et cetera. So we do a lot of fixed wing, a lot of helicopter stuff. And then what I'm very proud of is the EMS fellowship. So we have the largest fellowship in, uh, this, in the United States. Uh, we take approximately uh, eight now fellows a year. So these are people who finished uh, residencies in emergency medicine or pediatric emergency medicine. And we take them. We are the biggest program. And these people, after they finish their residency, so they could go work in any emergency department they want to, but instead they come with me from all over the country for one to two years, and we train them to be EMS physicians. And after they leave us, they go on to become medical directors of hopefully large EMS systems somewhere in the United States. Um, so this is a, it's a fully accredited program, and these guys will go all over. They're running major EMS systems throughout the United States now after coming here just for one year. And if anybody doesn't know now, you can be board certified in EMS. So just like emergency medicine, so just like cardiology, gastroenterology, you can actually be board certified in this specialty. So this is a, a brand new concept. So it's actually its own specialty now. It's own specialty. So you want your medical director to be board certified in EMS, just like any other specialty. Right, because the average study done by this guy named Adam Ray a couple of years ago, which showed that the average emergency medicine resident only gets six days of pre-hospital care during their entire three to four year residency. So emergency wow. medicine doctors, ER doctors, don't know anything about pre-hospital care. Why would they? They only get six days on average of experience, right? No, I'm not surprised they don't know anything. We're not training them to know anything. And that's okay because this is all its own specialty. Who do you want sitting next to you in the back of an ambulance where the patient needs a field amputation or be given blood? Or surgical procedure, you want an EMS physician, not an emergency physician. Who do you want in the back of your helicopter or the back of your fixed wing plane when you need a surgical procedure or something done? You need an EMS physician. It's totally separate. So we are the pre-hospital doctors, right? This is how why EMS fellowships were set up. They were set up so people can be pre-hospital on the road. We have somebody on the road in the state of New Jersey, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's always somebody on the road who can do any surgical procedure, has field amputation equipment, has lots of extra drugs, has lots of video laryngoscopy stuff, has transesophageal echo stuff. So all this really, uh, all this really cool stuff, and can do it at any time. They take the vehicles home with them. They have mechanics for the vehicles. They have their own pharmacists. Right. The idea is we stay in service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And for the last couple of years, we've been able to do that. Obviously, in our state, geography limits us sometimes, but we'll go three hours lights and siren uh, to one location. Um, we're best wow. when somebody is on, when the paramedic or EMT gets to a scene and says, we're not getting out of here for a really, really, really long time. Then it's great to call us. We get calls all the time for bad traumas who are entrapped. And the minute you extricate the guy, just go to the hospital and cancel us. That's totally appropriate. But if you're not sure how long you're going to be there or you think maybe a field amputation is required, then, you, then you know, you're certainly welcome to call us. If there's an MCI in a city, you know, you probably can get all the patients off scene before we can get there, right? Because we may be coming from far away. You would hope. You, you, you never know. And some of these extrications go on for like a long time, but you don't need to do anything special because we are always available and can do any procedures. We train on all these procedures. I mean, yesterday one of my docs had a 70-year-old motorcyclist who was, um, who was stuck on scene for a long time and um, he did finger thoracostomies and then put chest tubes in, right? And it's perfect wow. because needle decompression um, is, one, the needles aren't long enough usually, two, they're oftentimes not in the right spot, and three, you know, when you move the patient, you can press the anterior cath or whatever device you're using, so it's not perfect. 
And four, if you do one decompression, if it's a big pneumothorax, you probably need to do multiple ones, right? And five, if it's a hemothorax, which it usually is if it's trauma, that, that anterior cath is going to do nothing, right? Because you have to get some blood out. So this is why, in this particular patient, this is why we put a chest tube in. Normally, when we have a pneumothorax and we're on scene, we put like a little pigtail catheter in, which we carry on our vehicles. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's almost, it's really bringing the hospital to the patient. It's bringing everything. It's bringing more than the hospital, more than the ER has. We're going to bring surgical uh, procedures out to the field, uh, available to respond uh, at a moment's notice. So I guess being an EMT and a paramedic before medical school wasn't too much of a handicap. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's I had the same disease as everybody else. You know, I, I, for me, every Friday and Saturday night when I was in college, I worked in the emergency department in Pittsburgh in the trauma center. And, um, and I worked as a paramedic and I knew I got the bug and I knew I couldn't get rid of it. Even now, I still respond on some calls here and there. And uh, whenever I'm stressed out or life behind the desk in a time gets to be too much, uh, I go on a couple of paramedic calls and it, it calms me down. Because still, in 2018, when I see an ALS call for a sick patient and one or two paramedics who are doing a really good job, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy, right? When <laughs> I hear about these cases where people did a really good job, like it makes my day. So I love when people send me cases. You know, somebody, right. uh, maybe somebody who's listening was a, a New Jersey paramedic who's now a, um, a, a nurse in a, in a New York City ICU. And he said, in this ICU, they're starting to give um, a TXA for non-traumatic uh, head bleeds. Right, and I'm like, great. And the whole neurosurgery okay. department decided to do this, and I'm like, great. You're providing great care to your patients, and uh, so when I hear people who are, you know, watching our our, our lectures, or or um, you know, following us on um, our Facebook, because we do a whole, you know, what we do with with our fellows is we do um, Facebook live streaming every Wednesday at like one o'clock for the most part, and we'll get uh, like up to seven thousand viewers. Um, and we get a lot of people who are watching in multiple specialties. So that's really cool. I and mean, we, we debate the articles. And every week I pull anywhere from two to ten articles that come out in the literature that I want to change our practice. So we pull these articles. We I used to send them out. Now I put them on just on our website because um, uh, I'm technically challenged. And so I just <laughs> we have somebody upload onto the website. And we debate these articles. And we say, can we change our practice? based upon these articles this week. Because I don't want my doctor, I always say this, I don't want my doctor practicing out of a textbook. So I don't want my paramedic practicing well, out, textbook, out of textbooks a textbooks are 10 years old. Yeah, they're old. By the time they come out, they're old. I've written chapters in books, and I've like, and people write back and say, this is too cutting edge. You know, We need more standard of care stuff. But standard of care is old. By the time you're learning it, yeah, I mean, certain things never change, You know, where the, the bones are never change. But current literature changes all the time. It changes every week. So I'm not saying that you should learn what's in the box. You should learn what's in the box first. Mm -hmm. And then step two is to learn what's outside the box. So you know, I'm not the guy to come in and teach your EMT or your paramedic class. I'm the guy to come the last day of class and tell you why everything you learned is completely wrong, right? <laughs> so, and, and, that's, and that's what we do. We go in and we give a lecture. And, but, uh, but you have to learn what's in the box first before you learn. You know, but that is such a passage if you think about it. That's, that's the trajectory is you, you graduate medic school or you graduate, you know, whatever program you're in and you think you know everything. And you know and nothing. It, and it takes about a week for you to figure out, right. oh, wait. No, I really don't. I, I'm know afraid this. of what I don't know. I read every night before I go to bed, no matter what time I get home, whether it's midnight, I read for two hours, no matter what. And I'm shocked at how much I don't know. Uh, and I try, I read from multiple journals. I read every week, I read most of New England Journal of Medicine. And I'm shocked how much I don't know and how scary it is. The Do you know how much that statement terrifies me? <laughs> yeah. It's only people who don't know what they're doing who, who think they know all this stuff. Right. Done in I, mean, I mean, I tell EMS all the time, I said, when you go to the ER and you see something you, that you see a doctor do that you think is dumb, maybe it's dumb, maybe it's brilliant. You got to ask, why would you do that? Because if you just if it's something you don't know, then you're going sure. to assume like it's it's strange. But it's it's you know, I always tell people when I lecture that, you know, somewhere in the world, somebody's already doing what I'm telling you about as crazy as it sounds. There are people who are doing it all the time. Right. You know, when we when we started doing, you know, no long boards, you know, people thought that was crazy. I know when people Oh, stopped, that was heresy. When people stopped doing short boards. I mean, how many people died because we just stopped doing short boards? Right? And and there are places in the world like Fresno, California, where they don't do cervical collars, right? But yet if you tell it to somebody they'll go, How could that be? And the answer is because there's a whole world out there and people just get used to their little world and how things are done. And things can be approached, you know, all different types 
of ways, right? And, and, uh, and that's what you have to keep in mind. So we do this journal club, we debate the articles and we say, can, can we change our practice based upon the articles today? What we can control, we control. What we can control, we look for places that we can control things, you know? So we go back and forth, we change what we can. And there's a lot in every state where we can change stuff like sure. overnight. That's, that's great. Um, you know, it's so many places that li may listen to us that, you know, it's regressive, it's not progressive. You know, people feel trapped in their systems, but uh, you know, right. this is this is where it needs to go. Right. We do some things great in our state, and uh, we do some things not so great. That's no different from anybody else. Sure. Right. We all the same <clears throat> issues. You look. You can look for pockets in the world where they are cutting edge with you know these things, and they're way behind in time in other things. Right. It's just the right. way it is. It's okay. We don't. I'm one a believer that we don't all need to be the same. Right, we don't because we all have different EMS systems. Like the old saying goes, you know, if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. We can all be a little bit different based upon our geography, based upon our level of providers, based upon a lot of things. We should all like have a bar that we all have to live up to. But if you want to go way above the bar, like that's totally okay, right? That's great, right? Okay. I mean, I've had squads who who started um, doing no long boards really early, way before most of the MIC used it. Right, and that was because I said, just go to your hospital and tell them you're going to do this, and let's do it. Right, right. It's not regulation, and it's still funny. It's it's been years since that came out, and and there's still years. people that get itchy. Right. People say, are you going to go to jail? Does the Department of Health know what you're doing? Yes, yeah, somebody's going to come to my door and lock me up because I'm helping people. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's silly. There's so many things like this that people are, you know. I mean, for high flu nasal candy, one of my doctors gave me a lecture, and somebody raised their hands and said. You can't do that. You'll blow out their sinuses. And I'm like, you know, here's the problem. You have to open up your mind to stuff you don't know or understand and say, maybe he's right, right? Maybe, like, what I'm doing is just wrong because, you know, somebody taught me this and somebody taught them that and, you know, so forth and so forth and so forth. Right. You know, and, and nobody meant to give you the wrong information. They did the best they could at that moment, right? right? And now there's more information but it's so hard to keep up with it, right? Things change all the time. You know, I'm very scared about people who say, I don't have time to read, right? I mean, what you, reading is what you give back to your profession, right? It's what it's your responsibility, right? You have to stay current and up to date. That's what you do. This is part of your job. Think of this, what, if you're an EMF, part of your job is keeping up to date and reading and being constant education. Not when your CEUs are due, that's just silly, right? Uh, we run conferences and people don't come until their CEUs are, 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 are due. And, and that's, that's meaningless. Every day should be spent in some sort of education making you smarter. Before you go to bed every night, or if you're waking up in the morning, either one should be, depending on if you work days or nights, should be, what did I learn today so I can take better care of my patients? Because it's all just information. People say, what should I read? And I always give them pointers about, you know, go read this article, go read that article. But in the end, it's all just information. Go read, you know, go read like an article on review of acute decompensated heart failure. You know, read stuff that you think you know the answer to, right? Ask questions that you think you know the answer to, because we all make the mistake in just asking questions that we don't know. Ask the questions that you do know, and every now and then you'll realize that you don't know what you're talking about, right? And just open your mind. Go, you know, go to lectures, you know. Go to things that challenge you, right? I never go to a lecture anymore where I can go read about that topic at home. Why would I? I don't go to a lecture anymore on sinusitis. Right? I can go read about it. I can go look right. up anything online. I go to lectures where people are discussing like current articles. Right? That's kind of what intrigues me. Right? The current because I probably missed an article because you have thousands of articles that come out every single day now. It's impossible to keep it up. And there's nothing wrong with reading about you know pediatric hematology or blood transfusion. It's all just information. You have no idea where what's going to be wrong with your patient. I mean, it's just like uh, if I tell you right now somebody collapsed outside the office. I give this example all the time, and I, you had to pick who you would want to take care of that patient. Who would you say? Well, you would say, maybe if you had a heart problem, I'd want a cardiologist. Maybe if I had this, I'd want that, that person. But the answer is you'd want an EMS provider because you don't know what's wrong with the person. And when you get a call of an ankle sprain or chest pain, you don't know what's really wrong with the person. So you want an EMS provider because they can take care of everything. And same thing in the hospital, you know, or pre-hospital. If you're gonna have a doctor, you need an EMS physician because you don't know what's really wrong with the patient, so you have to pick, take, you have to bring somebody to the patient who can take care of a bit of everything. Brilliant, I can, I love it.
But read, read every <laughs> night. Read every night something. Just anything, right? Okay. You hear that, everybody? Read. Two, uh, two hours every night, no matter how Two tired. hours every night, Dr. Merlin prescribed. Um, you know, there's a lot of controversy today surrounding the role and the efficacy of EMS. Um, you know, you have studies coming out every day. It seems like you have doctors. And it's, it's kind of a pet peeve with me, so maybe you can change my thinking on it. Um, you know, when, a, when you have a, somebody quoting a study and saying, oh, paramedics should never intubate or uh, just throw them in the back of a police car and drive them to the hospital, that's all that matters. Um, where do you see... Where do you see the future of pre-hospital medicine? Yeah. Where do you where do you see paramedicine going? Uh, I always hear people comment about the way things really are. They have some inside information, and usually I can I can debate the truth into somebody, right? I can say that this picture is much bigger. It's not based upon one article or one concept. You have to look at at the entire picture, all the articles that come out, right? And most people get like a little a bit of an article and then run with it instead of looking at the entire article to say what, what the truth is. And I hear people do this you know, all the time. And I get misquoted a lot, which is okay, because I'd rather people be talking about me than not talking about me. But, but to answer your question, I mean, if you look, we finally really showed in 2017 that paramedics should intubate, right? There was some literature beforehand, but if you look over the last 10, 15 years, the literature swung back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In 2017, we had three major trials that came out. All three shed paramedics should intubate. One, one was particularly for a traumatic brain injury called the PROTECT-3 trial. And one was this trial, which is yet to be published, called, and it was by this guy named Adhead, A-D-H-E-T. This was Belgium and France's data. And in Belgium and France, they were convinced that paramedics should stop intubating. So they did a study with a pretense that paramedics should stop intubating. Not only did they find that paramedics should not stop intubating, they found that when they intubated, they had better outcomes, right? So, so there was an inherent bias already with the already, investigators, right. and they now, still proved themselves right. wrong. Now, 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 BVM happened to do partic particularly um, well, but that's another part of the study. But when compared against superglottic airways, intubation did better. Intubation did better when compared against superglottic. That, that, that point oftentimes gets missed. So they said, based on this, we can't stop them from intubating. And that's pretty interesting. So three major trials, one was a very large trial, and then these two other ones. So, you know, recently, the article that everybody refers to is my friend Henry Wang's trial, right? Which was, you know, and I hate it when people criticize these articles too much. Because I always say, I'd rather be the guy writing the article than the guy criticizing the article, right? Criticizing is easy. We all get to sit back, you know, we have some like potato chips, some french fries, and we all get to sit around in, in groups and say why the article was so bad. The truth is, you didn't do the article, buddy, right? So they did the best they could. And I think that the article is a great article. Statistically, it's very sound, right? It, it was very well done for a lot of different reasons. And and for those who think, that, you know, it, everything is not black and white. Should paramedics intubate or not intubate? In fact, this study, um, showed a couple of things. One, it told me that for certain outcomes, 72 hours, people do a little bit better in his population, right, when they, when they don't necessarily get intubated. Okay. This was a rock database, so a lot of big cities, which are different than other places many of us practice. I think their intubation success rate was 51.6%, if I remember mm. right. And that is different than a lot of people's. Now, that's not to, great. To their credit, to their great credit, they address this in their limitations. They didn't hide from this. And they said that they didn't understand why their intubation success rate was, was lower than other studies. Exactly. So if I had a system where my intubation rate was 51.6%, and by the way, we're all better. We, we all think we're better than we really are. I hear people all the time say my intubation success rate is 99%. No, and the it's answer not. Is, no, it's not. My best guess of the literature from looking at a lot of studies is saying it's really in the low 80s. That's what our first press success really is in, in, in the low 80s. When you really subject your trial to true scrutiny and statistics and everything, right? But does, does first pass success matter as much as not hurting the patient? Right. First pass success is not the key thing. We've been, we've been misled, right? And we'll get back to what we're talking about in a second, but it's not first pass success. It's not necessarily getting the tube through the cords. It's what happens along the journey. Mm -hmm. I always say this. So the journey is about how, how hypoxic the patient gets, how bradycardic the patient gets, 
and how hypotensive the patient gets, right? That's the journey. If it takes you three attempts, you have to tube through the cord, but you didn't have those things happen, then that is success. If it takes you one attempt, but the patient got bradycardic, hypoxic, and hypotensive, that to me is not a success. Now we're dealing with critical patients. It could be just because the patient's critical that that happened, but, but putting the tube through the cord sometimes aids in that, and sometimes is the cause of it if you're not following like good rules and following good like bundles for difficult airways, right? So do I think in a system where their success rate is 51.6% or so, um, and, um, and first pass was not so good, and it took them a lot of attempts, and they, it took them a few extra seconds to intubate the patient. Do I actually think that um, in his system, superglottic should be used? Absolutely. That's, he proved that to me in his system. So do I think that all Primax should intubate? No. I think if you're not intubating a lot, and we're going to have a discussion with what a lot means, and your success rate is in the 50th percentile, right, or 50% or so, and it's taking you more than X number of seconds to get that tube through the cords, I don't think you should be intubating, right? So that means that in, in town A, you may be only be allowed to put a superglottic in, and in town B, which connects, you may be able to put an endotracheal tube in, right? But I do think we should limit how many attempts you get, and maybe that is the answer is one, or maybe it's two, but not much more than that. And if you can't get that, then you just put a superglottic airway in. I think it'd be interesting to do the same exact study with the success rate of, of you know, 80% with the same, same statistical analysis, and I bet endotracheal tube will win. Now, my statistician pointed out to me that if you take, if you look at his subgroup analysis and you take two of the survivors, just two out of that, because his lower end of confidence interval approach is zero, then that would totally change all the results. Okay, subgroup analysis. Right, so, so he did analysis on 72 hour survival, right? And if you took two patients out of that group, because he had a somewhat wide confidence interval, right, in statistics, two patients, that would have changed all the results. Doesn't mean the study's bad, just puts it into perspective, right? Okay. So, again, he did the study, you know, congratulations, that is amazing. We didn't do the study, he did it. So two patients out of one group would have changed the results in that study, all right? Again, that's just kind of interesting. So the conclusion, you know, that the media gets is that we should all stop intubating. No, no, no. This just tells me a little bit of what I already knew. But it's important to do studies on what you already know. And, that's is if you, and that is, if you are intubating conditions um, or skill of the provider is not optimal, they shouldn't be allowed to do a procedure. I'm not sure that's any different for anything else we do in medicine. Right? I, would, I would buy that. I, absolutely. So I'm okay if we have crews that on Mondays can intubate and Tuesdays can't. And the reason I'm okay is I can't have that Tuesday crew who, who, who doesn't have the same skill set as the Monday crew perform a procedure that's higher risk, right? So don't take it do. away. Make sure that the people doing it are up on their science, know don't what they're doing, away. and can practice with good practice. And if you have to take it away, tell your providers that superglottics are pretty good, right? Because our focus should not be on the airway, right? And for people who say this was a new concept, that circulation, it should be circulation, airway, breathing, I say that's absurd. Circulation airway breathing started in the 40s with Peter Saffer, right? It didn't start in the last week or year, right? This is a concept. I mean, this is Nick Saffer, this is Nick Bircher and, 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 and Peter Saffer who wrote a book, Cardiopulmonary Cerebral Resuscitation, right? So all the t stuff we're talking about of cerebral resuscitation now, mm -hmm. you know, this is freaking not new. This is from the 40s and 50s and 60s in Saffer's labs. This is not new. This is old stuff. Most new ideas are just retakes of really, really old concepts. So the concept of, you know, that the, and, and Europe has been doing this for years, that the airway's not important is true. It's circulation that's important. We've known this for decades and decades and decades, right? Focus on the circulation. This is why, um, this is why PICRU CPR has become so, so popular. This is why um, doing, um, this is why doing CCCPR, community CPR, or chest compression only CPR has become so popular, not ventilating, because that person who finds the patient circulate first, airway second, right? right? Not new, not new. And the places that do this widespread have great cardiac arrest survival rates. Right, well, I'm very skeptical when people say great cardiac arrest survival rates personally, 
Because to me, I have everybody all the time. People say to me, "Well, our cardiac arrest, uh, our cardiac arrest uh, rates, uh, survival rates are fifty percent." And my response is, "No, they're not." Right? I, my, my response is usually, uh, "I don't quite believe you." Because first, I say, "Really, where's your data been published?" And they go, "Well, we haven't published it." Well, publish your data, open it up to the same scrutiny that everybody else has. Now, Minnesota, a few other places publish some pretty impressive data, granted, but. I hate it when people say to me, well, we have 50% ROSC. Well, who cares? I, I need you to walk out of the hospital live with minimal to no neurologic disability. CPC one or two. Yes. Yes. This is what counts to That's me. That's the win. So when you publish that kind of data, I'm interested. When you tell me that your that, that your survivor rate, meaning ROSC, is 50%, it, that's meaningless to me. I don't care. When you tell me that you've put it on a Lucas device or autopulse and you've seen people wake up while getting compressions, uh, that's nice. That sounds good. But did the guy walk out of the hospital alive with minimal to no neurological disability? That's what I really care about. So we have to put things into perspective. But people need to publish their data. It needs to be open to the scrutiny of the scientific community, not just what I hear people say. Right? Okay. That's, that's much, much different. Makes sense. So there is a future. <laughs> yeah. So, th I mean, there, there's a, a big future in EMS. I mean, there's so many things to be excited about right now. And there's so many things being talked about just in the, I mean, just in the cardiac arrest literature from double sequence fibrillation. I mean, we published the second major uh, case series on that ever after the North Carolina guys. And although there's been like two or three papers that were not very um, supportive of it, there, I mean, and I hate to use the example, but I have lots of case studies where we had guys who got 10 single defibrillations, got one double sequence, got ROSC, got cath, and walked out of the hospital alive with no neurologic disability. 10 sh single shocks, one double sequence, and converted. So this needs to be early on in the algorithm, and I still don't see a lot of algorithms uh, publishing very early, a double, one or two double sequence. We want the same stuff. You know, if you're not converted after one or two defibrillations, your chances of survival goes down dramatically. Add in a double sequence really, really soon. Because in 2018, I have no idea how many joules to defibrillate somebody at, and I have no idea when to start doing a double sequence. I have no idea, right? We know nothing in 2018 about defibrillation, or I should say very little. Why is it kids get started at two joules per kilo and then they go to four joules per kilo and something magic happens when you become an adult that you all get shocked at the same number of joules? It's silly. Whether you're an adult with a huge body habitus or an adult with a small body habitus, why is it all the same? And I think the answer is it's got something to do with double sequence defibrillation. And I don't think it's the number of joules, because people always say it's 720 joules, and that's not true, because joules aren't cumulative like that, number one. Number two, it's the extra vector, right? That's what I believe it is. So maybe one day we'll have, you know, a Zoll or a, a life pack with eight pads or 15 pads, and we'll get multiple vectors. Just like we're doing compressions in different sites based upon ultrasound of where the heart is, right? So maybe you're left to the sternum or right to the sternum or superior inferior. We're, we're shocking, you know, we should be shocking at different places. And I think four pants with a double sequence defibrillation, I don't even like that term because it's not really sequential. Uh, um, it's whenever you push the buttons as close together as possible. Uh, um, I think that is part of the answer, right? It's certainly much cheaper than ECMO, right? But I, th I think that is, is, is part of the answer, doing early double sequence. So in our study, you know, after, you know, our problem was we were doing double sequence. So in our, our protocol is to do it after three defibrillations, uh, because after three failed defibrillations. Why do we do after three and North Carolina did after five? And the answer is because I totally made it up, right? Because I didn't know. But I believe that probably sooner is better, right? So if, if somebody went down right now, I want to convert them from VF, hoping they're in VF, as soon as possible. And I don't know, I, I want to convert them with as little energy as needed to convert them on the first shock. But I have no idea how to figure that out in 2018. I know I should get to somebody as soon as possible. And I know, and, and I know I probably should use like four pads, right? But I have no idea what the number of joules were, right? And we need some mechanism to figure that out. So, I mean, that's what's really exciting. And the next, you know, exciting thing is, is you know, doing continuous compressions. And then other exciting things are, you know, I mean, we're finally getting the message out to put a peep valve on your BVM. I still go to places and people like look at Oh, yeah, we're, we'll get to that. All right. <laughs> and, and then, you know, we have all the things about putting in arterial lines and keeping, you know, and doing compressions based upon diastolic blood pressure and keeping it at 40 millimeters of mercury. That data really, I think, hasn't completely panned out yet, and we don't know what to do with the A-lines. Um, should you put A-lines into everybody? Uh, I don't think we know yet. 
but I certainly don't think we should do it in people who have, um, um, you know, rhythms that they're not salvageable. You know, the V-fib, the young patient, the guy who asystole doesn't need an A-line, you know, PEA is, you know, PEA is, I mean, this is a Littman paper that people still haven't read. You got to read one paper on the planet about PEA, and it's the Littman paper, L-I-T-T-M-A-N. We review it every single year, and it's a great paper. It's the idea of to stop freaking saying just PEA. Say PEA and what's on the monitor. Is PEA in narrow complex rhythm, and PEA in a wide complex rhythm is like totally different, right? It's a totally different algorithm. We should be treating it totally, totally different. PEA with a wide complex, think of hyperkalemia and start treating with, throw calcium at him. And throw, you know, calcium chloride, 10%, you know, 100 milligrams per ml, throw 10 mLs at him, and that's where you focus first. Uh, PEA with narrow complex rhythm, think of ischemia, infarction, maybe inferior wall infarct extending to the RV, and maybe they're just too hypotensive, what we used to call pseudo-EMD, and start giving them push-dose pressures over and over again to start getting their blood pressure up, like really, really high, and then hopefully you'll get uh, sustained blood pressure. Some paramedic unit just called me and said, we have somebody in the PEA. So I said, all right, here we go again. That's what I said to myself. It's okay, you're doing great. What do you see on the monitor? And they say, well, we see a narrow complex. I said, that's kind of interesting. Remember the old days we would take our stethoscope and listen for listen for apical heart sounds? Yeah. Now we can do ultrasound if the unit has it available. So we, the unit didn't have it available. So I said, hmm, well, they're in a perfectly narrow complex, right? I said, you know what? Let's do a different strategy. Stop doing compressions, and let's start giving 20, 20 mics of epinephrine over and over. And the paramedic said, okay. So she stopped doing compressions. She started giving 20 mics after the second... 20 mics, which was done right after the first, the guy got a blood pressure back of 80. And she wow. goes, she goes, well, now I see like an inferior wall MI. And I'm like, I could have guessed. So she gave 80. And what happened, by the way, in this patient is the patient kept going in and out of cardiac arrest, in and out, in and out, in and out, right? And what she was really saying to me is that she, he kept going in and out of hypotension. So now we gave him, she was squeezing fluids, doesn't do anything. So now we're giving him, you know, uh, something, uh, an alpha drug, right? Epinephrine which is the most important role in cardiac arrest. And now we got his blood pressure up. He never became hypertensive again. He went to the cath lab, right? He had a big fixed lesion and then, and then he survived. Right. Wow. And we didn't do compressions. Right? Cause we, he treated it as profound shock as opposed to a cardiac right, arrest. Cause he was extending to his RV and that's what was making him hypertensive. Wow. Right. So isn't that interesting? What if somebody told you in cardiac arrest, stop doing compressions. You would look at them like they're a little weird. But think about this. If somebody's in the ICU and their blood pressure is 60, you know, we usually give fluids and pressures, right? right? If their blood pressure is 60 and they're pre-hospitally, unfortunately, we start CPR because it's the best thing we have because we still have, until we have routinely have ultrasound machines um, on every unit, that's, we have a poor man's way of figuring out cardiac arrest, a pulse check. Poor man's way, right? Do you think ultrasound's coming? Yeah. I, I'm hopeful. I think that there's a couple of new devices on the market that are going to help us a lot. One is this um, butterfly butterfly IQ, yeah. which I'm kind of excited about. I mean, that'll basically just... So I, I believe the future, everybody will not have a stethoscope around their neck. They'll have a transducer around their neck, right? And that's how okay. you'll be walking into EMS calls with a transducer, and you'll plug it into your own smartphone. And the future is it'll work in any smartphone uh, you have. And my guess is the price of the transducers, which um, is still a little much for uh, EMS providers, but much, much cheaper than the... I mean, my, my Nanomax was like $28,000, right? Right. So the prices will come down over the years, right? And then you just have a transducer you plug into your smartphone, and you can do all these things, all these things. I wear a stethoscope around my neck now, so it tells people I'm a doctor. That's, that's why. That's the only role it has. Other than that, I use the ultrasound machine uh, for everything we do. We can tell pneumonia, pleural effusions, pericardial effusions, and, and everything, and fast exams, and everything like in seconds quicker than x-ray can come in and usually better off too than x-ray and you can almost use it as an early warning coming into the hospital like hey doc here's what i see here's what we've got you know imagine to be able to transmit that to the trauma team like hey there is fluid in their belly hey there is a pericardial tamponade there are things that heck if you're you pre-hospital you have a big pericardial effusion why don't you go to a hospital that can take care of it right so if you're between two hospitals or even one other patient's not dying and they have a pericardial effusion when I go to a hospital that can take care of that surgically, right? That kind of makes sense to me, right? Sure. What's best for the patient. Right, right. And you don't know. And, and I mean, listen, it, it, I hear when people make up rules to say, if this happens, do this pre-hospital. I think the answer is it depends upon your freaking system, right? 
certain things work well in certain systems, like ECMO. ECMO will never work in many, many EMS systems because most of the hospitals that people go to do not have ECMO capabilities. It will never work. It's not even worth the discussion. Have a freaking discussion about double sequence defibrillation, right? People are talking about ECMO in a system where they where it's an hour driver for people in cardiac arrest. By the time you get to the entire CO2, is nothing, and the patient has no chance of survival. But if you have somebody young in VF, and you know it's 20 minutes longer, and you want to travel 20 minutes longer to a hospital, which could do ECMO for somebody with persistent VF, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Based upon like the Paris, system. Paris is doing this now. Yeah, you know, I wanted their data to be better than it was when 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 um, you know France, Germany, other places started doing ECMO. It sounded really sexy. I wanted their data to be better than it was, and I think the conclusion is. It's good for younger people. It's good with people with persistent VF. Don't be doing this with people, you know, with, um, you know, who have metastatic disease or asystole. You will never save those patients, right? It's got to meet the population. It does, but you have to have these discussions. Be when when every you know around the table when there are no emergencies to deal with because the discussions the answers to the discussions happen terribly when you're with a patient. Right? It's, this is very complicated to, to do. When can we do this? What during what hours of the day? Who's going to be putting Who's going to be putting the catheter? Certainly, ER can put the catheters in. Most community hospitals are not capable of doing this because they're they're they, they're barely hanging on to like their volume because every day is a code triage in, in, in many emergency departments. Right. That's true. But ECMO is great in the right population, in the right population, the right patient. It's it's worth trying. Right. Um, and you know, bring people right to the cath lab and cardiac arrest is something very in vogue. We also have two really good papers in the last uh, year. Um, what was the meta-analysis of eight trials, which actually looked at so 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 if somebody's having a STEMI, we all agree that they should go to the cath lab for PCI. Sure, what about the patient Absolutely. who's having a cardiac arrest who gets ROSC, who um, who is not having a STEMI on their EKG. Should that patient go to the cath lab in 2018? Yeah, I think so. So the answer is yes. We proved it this year. We proved it. There was one, one meta-analysis of eight trials, although when you look at the meta-analysis, only one of those was a randomized controlled trial. The other eight, seven were observational trials, which sometimes could be misleading, granted. And they showed better outcome with people who go right to the cath lab who don't have a STEMI on EKG, right? So what percent, the next question you should be asking is, what percent of these people will have a fixed lesion when they go to the cath lab? And the answer seems to be 30%. 30% will have a fixed lesion. In other words, that's the cause of their cardiac arrest, and it's a fixed lesion, which they can stent or do something about, or back to me or something, in the cath lab. So this is what we've shown in, in, in these two trials now. So is 30% enough to bring in your interventional team after hours to a community hospital? Maybe not, right? It's, it's a hard question to ask. I think, you know, because if you talk to some of these interventional, these cath junkies, they'll tell you I take cath call 300 days out of the year. You want me to come in for every time somebody has a ROSC who has no, you know, nothing on their EKG? Because seventy percent of the time they won't have anything I can do anything about. Now it's much easier if you take calf call maybe once every, you know, two or three months to come in for all these patients. But I understand what they're saying. It's challenging to do this if you're in a community hospital which doesn't have that many calf jockeys or interventionalists, right? Uh, I got it. But in the teaching hospital or where you have a lot of people around. I think these people belong in the cath lab. Again, you have to make a judgment. Sometimes you do a pit stop and CAT scan to make sure they don't have a big bleed or evidence of an anoxic brain injury, which may not even show up right away, but sometimes does, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes you have to use your judgment. You know, do I want to do something, you know, somebody who's 90 years old with a met, you know, metastatic disease? Probably not, but these are the hard decisions where, you know, we have to make judgments about, about what to do. Wow. A lot of knowledge here. So talk to me about, we're gonna, I wanna talk about one of your favorite things. I wanna talk about the bag valve mask. <laughs> or the bag of death. The bag of death. The BOD. So I think the most dangerous device in any ICU, emergency department, um, or paramedic unit, or uh, BLS unit is the bag of death. We've renamed it. More people get harmed by this device than helped, right? So it's a pretty bold statement. It is a bold statement. As seeing as how it's in everybody's jump bag, it's in every right. ambulance in the world. It's universal. So, so everybody knows how to use it. Bagging people harms patients in four separate ways. One is the simple thing: you open the low esophageal sphincter, right? It's a connection between the esophagus and the stomach, and you cause aspiration, right? Because you start to everything just starts backing up, and people start aspirating by squeezing that bag of death too aggressively, right? In the in the OR, it's much easier. People say, "Oh, I, I rotate through the OR and they beg like crazy." 
Well, they can measure airway pressures in the OR. So they can bag as hard as they want to because they're measuring the airway pressure. We're not doing that in the emergency department, and we're not doing that in the pre-hospital setting for the most part. There's some new BVM devices on the market which actually have manometers on them, which are kind of cool, and this will be all our future BVMs. But it hasn't really been up until this point. And then we'll say that you shouldn't, you know, your manometer shouldn't go above 27 or some number, depending on whose article you believe that day. So the other, of the three other things it does bad is one is it causes shunting, right? So basically you have blood that flows through the capillary past the alveoli and you shunt blood away because your the alveoli gets distended up too much, too much pressure in the alveoli. So you actually compress the capillaries surrounding the alveoli and you cause shunting. Basically the blood goes past the alveoli without being oxygenated. Number three is it decreases blood flow to the brain. And number four is it decreases blood flow to the heart. So you actually decrease blood flow to the heart because you you increase negative intrathoracic pressure, you reduce preload, you reduce blood flow through the coronary arteries and through the myocardium. So you reduce blood flow to the heart. Bag of death harms patients. So am I saying it's a bad device? I'm not, if you use correctly. If you use correctly, it's a great device, right? The other thing you have to do is, so, so you have to make the BBM safe. You can make it safe by doing a couple of things. One is you put a peep valve on every BBM. Let's keep this as simple as possible. You squeeze in the bag of death, you look down, if there's a, no peep valve on it, you're doing the wrong thing 100% of the time. If there's a peep valve on it, you're doing the right thing 100% of the time, pretty simple. This, if you're on a squad that doesn't have a peep valve on your BVM, this is a true emergency. Go license siren right now, limited use of license siren, out to go buy peep valves. It's a cheap device. So here's what happens. You, you squeeze the bag of death, your alveoli opens, right? Only three things you gotta know in the body that's important. The left ventricle, the alveoli, and a little bit of the adrenal gland, right? If you understand the three, those three things really well, you'll be more than 99% of people out there. So you squeeze the bag of death and your alveoli opens. But what happens in between it, squeezing it? Your alveoli collapses shut. But it's even more problematic than that because when it's collapsed shut, you don't really oxygenate. The problem is now all subsequent squeezes of the bag of death takes more force to open up the alveoli every time it squeezes shut, right? So that's a problem. So how do you avoid that? Well, I want to oxygenate all my patients, not just during inspiration, but during expiration. So how do you do that? One is you put a peep valve on, right? A peep valve just stents open the alveoli. In simplest terms, it stents open the alveoli during exhalation. Doesn't during inhalation too, but it stents, it keeps it open. So you can oxygenate during the entire respiratory cycle. Who doesn't want to oxygenate during the entire respiratory cycle? Well, if you have no PFO on your BBM, you're telling me you don't want to. The other thing you can do is hyphalonasal cannula, which has multiple uses. But one is it keeps airflow going in, right? It's very simple stuff. So it keeps pressure in. So when you squeeze the, the bag of death with the peep valve on, now you're helping to stent open that alveoli even more during exhalation, right? This is why people who are not breathing need hyphalonasal cannula, not just people who are breathing. Our breathing, you got about 50 papers, really about 20 good ones in the literature for both adult and kids that talk about the benefits of it. You got one or two p p p papers which didn't totally support it, but had a lot of problems with the papers, right? Um, and, and a lot of subgroup analysis where they tried to make a lot of judgments on them. So this is what you do. So when do I, so let's keep this simple. When do I squeeze the bag of death? And the answer is when I have no choice, when my backup is against the wall. If somebody's not breathing, I gotta squeeze the bag of death. No kidding, right? You gotta do it. If somebody's breathing perfectly, you don't need to have a bag of death on them, right? I mean, I hate when people say, I was squeezing it so hard, doc, but you know, the guy kept you know, pushing my hand away. Maybe that guy was okay. Yeah, please stop, is right. usually so, so, so let's go between somebody breathing perfectly and not breathing at all, right? So when do you start squeezing the, the bag of death? And, and the answer is, it depends upon the patient. So we have to have the right tools to make that decision. And one is having a pulse ox. Every BLS unit is a freaking pulse ox. If you have a BLS unit and you do not have pulse oxes, you are doing the wrong thing 100% of the time. You always need a pulse ox, right? And then next thing is you have to use it uh, and be smart about the, in the interpretation of the information, right? If I put a pulse ox on your finger right now and says 60, I should be saying, what am I doing wrong? You know, and my, and the first question to you is the most important question with any patient: How are you doing? Right, right because if I'm sitting up talking to you and everything is fine, stop, and I'm stop mentating. believing numbers if the patient looks good. Right? How many people I see all the time say his pulse ox is 60, his pulse ox is 40, and I'm like, the blood pressure's going up, right? So the, there's pressure on the arm, so that's why. Or you look up and go, there's no good waveform. How are you doing, sir? Oh, I feel good. How are you? 
All right, so what are we doing wrong here? We've got enough time to figure it out. The most important question is the first one, how are you doing? If somebody can look at you and say, I'm doing well, I go, okay, that's 90% of my job is now done. Right, simple, simple sure. stuff. So, so you have to have the right tools to interpret when you start bagging. So the Polsox is one of them, and the Hyphalinus Candy is the other, and the p is is number three. Three simple things, all freaking cheap devices, right? Again, there are newer devices on the market, which I kind of like, which measure, have just peep valves on the BBM and have manometers. So you know if you're squeezing the BBM too, uh, too aggressively. So those are all like cool things. They're a little bit more expensive, the devices, but they probably save you money on the back end between not having to buy extra peep valves and manometers, which we'll all be using. The future is the manometer on every BBM. That's the future, and, and, I, and we'll get there. All right, so when do you start squeezing the bag of death? And I think the best answer is now and in the future is if you're breathing at least four times a minute, your set's at least 93, you don't need to squeeze the bag of death. You can either do one of two things. You can either put a CPAP on, right? And I believe under CPAP, there should be a hyphenasal cannula under every CPAP device. So if the patient gets worse, which they could if they're on CPAP, you take the device off and they're running a hyphenasal cannula. And by the way, we always use those terms wrong. What we pretty much have in the pre-hospital setting is um, CPAP, right? Except the first new disposable BiPAP device just came out for EMS, right? Uh, for, for everybody, right? So wow. a, a company just came out with it. Everybody's about to follow, right? But it, it's now on the market, a BiPAP device. So that's important because it will allow us to use EPAP in the pre-hospital setting. Um, so some people who aren't able to tolerate CPAP can tolerate BiPAP, right? Um, this, like people who are like obstructive uh, sleep apnea at night, we oftentimes give them BiPAP and set their EPAP at a lower rate than their IPAP because they can tolerate it better. So now we'll have more people who can tolerate it because certainly CPAP has changed our outcomes or patients in the pre-hospital setting. We, we, we know this. All right. So the reason I say SAT 93, or some authors say 90, is simple. It's that you know you have your oxyhemoglobin saturation curve, and our, our patients, our patients' oxyhemoglobin saturation curves shifts back and forth like all the time. So some people say 90 because of the shift in the oxyhemoglobin saturation curve. I say 93 just to keep it like nice and simple. If the respiratory rate's at least four, you know, you really don't need to, to bag. So you need to have a set at least 93 and a respiratory rate at least four. And then you can, and then you don't, um, you don't need to bag. You can just put them on like uh, oxygen and you put them on as much oxygen as they need, right? But a set of 93 doesn't really need any more oxygen. In fact, we know oxygen harms people. We show this in several studies, the most recent being the AVOID trial. And the AVOID trial is kind of old now. Being smart is easy now. It used to be much harder, right? You have to go to the library, the Dewey Decimal System, all this stuff. Yeah. Now, all you got to do is go into Google and type the AVOID trial, right? So and everybody getting 15 liters per minute, not good. No. Why, why Why? did somebody teach me to give everybody high nasal cannula with chest pain when I was an EMT? Because that's what they knew then and now we know much much better this is not new by the way we've known this kind of for 10 years believe it or not and again the literature is about 10 years uh, the textbooks are about 10 years behind the current wave of thinking we've known this but the avoid trial just got popularity in, in the media and stuff but there are papers i could cite back uh, for like 10 years that, that have kind of said this but the avoid trial was a, a better trial and we showed that it's six months by, by cardiac MRI, your, your stem, your infarct size will actually, your infarct size will be, get bigger if you use oxygen early on because of hyperoxia and free radicals and all these things. So if your size is at least 93 and you're having a STEMI, you don't need oxygen. And by the way, the typical patient who's having a STEMI, they're not hypoxic, right? If you think of all the STEMI patients you've treated, how many were hypoxic? And if they were, I'm starting to think, why are they hypoxic with their STEMI, right? Because maybe they're in cardiogenic shock, maybe they're in pulmonary edema. That's not the typical STEMI patient. Right. Right. There's something else going on. It's right. not the heart of. And if you go into the CC, if I took into the CCU right now, how many patients are having STEMIs would be on oxygen? Very few, and most would just be on two liters for the heck of it, right? Because it looks good, right? <laughs> but, the, the, but, and, and we have no good reason for doing that either. So, um, all right. So getting back, so generally those are my two criteria: 93 and respiratory rate at least four. Some people say six, but that's sort of silly because the integrated reliability of respiratory rates among EMS workers and anybody for that matter is not that good. So one man's four is another man's six. Um, and again, if you are below those numbers, then I bag you up until the point where you achieve that. So if you have like a naloxone overdose, or I'm sorry, if you have a heroin overdose and you don't have naloxone, let's say we want a few people left on the planet who doesn't have naloxone, then, then the heroin is gonna slowly, gonna wear off. So I would bag you up to the point where your set's 93, your respiratory rate's four, and then I would stop, and then I would put oxygen on you, right? 
and you know, and that's what I would do. A simple, a simple man's way to do this is just, if you, let's say you're one of the systems that doesn't have CPAP. All you do is take your BVM, high flow nasal cannula, peep valve, hold it over somebody's face while they're breathing, and don't squeeze the bag of death. And then they will get basically get CPAP. And now I've established CPAP in two seconds or less, right? And um, yeah, and that's basically it. Listen, if you're a heroin overdose, give the freaking Narcan, right? G give the Narcan, give the Narcan, give the Narcan. I mean, that's a whole other subject, but um, that will help the respiratory rate and pretty quickly, right? Before you can grab the bag of death. Sure. Right, before you can squeeze that first squeeze. I hate when people say, well, the first thing you want to do is squeeze the bag of death and then give the Narcan. No, 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 the first thing you want to do is give the freaking Narcan because you'll avoid the bag of death, right? You'll avoid somebody squeezing a bag of death too aggressively and the patient vomiting and aspirating and getting hypoxic. Right. And now and you've got pneumonia. an airway problem. And now you have an airway problem, right. If you do this my way, you will, I mean, I remember the day when everybody who was in cardiac arrest vomited like crazy. And believe it or not, if you do it my way and you don't aggressively bang people, you won't have people vomit. I mean, the worst thing to do is when you show up on scene and the patient's abdomen is really distended, you're behind the eight ball. You're behind the eight ball because that patient is going to start uh, vomiting on you and pretty quickly, right, because they have gastric distension. Because even if you bag perfectly, you can still cause gastric distension. It depends upon the anatomy of your upper airway, your esophagus, and your lesions, and a million other things, whether you're going to have gastric distension or not, right? So uh, that's a problem. So... Yeah, it's not that I'm against. People always ask me, oh, I hear you're against the, the bag of death. And I'm not. I'm all, I only want it to be used correctly, right? And um, I think we use it too much correctly. But we all do this, right? Now, I'm as guilty as the next person. I mean, we, we objectified the bag of death by at least getting entile CO2, right? And we had a couple of devices which say, squeeze the bag of death this fast. Lights that flashed or all sorts of devices on the market and entile CO2. So when somebody says, how fast do you want me to bag? I say, I'm not going to answer that question. I This is the, your entire CO2 number right here. I want you to be back as fast or as slow as you need to to keep the entire CO2, and I pick a number, 35. I pick a number based upon what it's at when you get there, right? So that's how fast or slow I want. I want so tailored to physiologics, not... Depends what's wrong with the patient. An arbitrary rate that somebody right. set up in a textbook somewhere. The most important thing my, phys my physicians do pre-hospital is I tell people to back slower. And the reason is their entire CO2 is 10. And I want to see if it's 10 because you're backing too fast or it's 10 because you're sick as crap, right? And if you slow down the bagging, you, you'll see if the anti-CO2 starts to come up. And if it starts to come up, that's pretty good. If it doesn't come up, it means you're really sick because anti-CO2 is direct measure of left ventricular function, right? So way before the, before the pulse rate changes, before the blood pressure changes, before anything, it's direct measure of left ventricular function. So this is why it's so important. I mean. I mean, it's a no-brainer now that everybody needs entile CO2 on their tip of their endotracheal tube. And by the way, if you can't afford the nasoprung entile CO2 because they are expensive and big systems, it's challenging to have it, you can just, just cut your T-piece and stick it in the mask, right? Or stick it down the, you know, the MP airway, right? And at least you'll get a poor man's indicator. And there's some weak evidence, although not great, but that numbers are pr those numbers are pretty okay and gives you an idea, right? When people say, oh, I have a COPD ear in the house, when do I know when to put them on high-flow oxygen? Right. First thing I say is, look at the patient. And the most important question is, you'll be dear, who, who has peripheral cyanosis, who sets 88, is you turn to their significant other and you say, how does he look to you today? And they go, he looks okay. We called you guys because of an ankle sprain. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> just so I understand, his, his fingertips are always a little blue? Yeah. Okay. His, he's always on six liters? Yeah. He always looks really short of breath? Yeah. That stuff is fine, guys. Right? But it's his ankle is really bothering him, right? So some people at home look terrible, and that's their baseline. That's why the most important thing is for you to differentiate where are they compared to their baseline, because those are the people who you, who might function hypoxic drives, right? This always gets interpreted wrong. Most COPDers do not function hypoxic drives. Let me say that again. Most COPDers breathe just like you or me, and it's really challenging for anybody to know if they function hypoxic drives. You can look at the, like the, the CO2 in the hospital by a blood gas and see what their CO2 is, and if they're talking to you and their CO2 is 80, maybe they're functioning hypoxic drives, maybe, but I don't know quite where they live unless I get their old records, right? So you don't know the pre-hospital setting. So I will oftentimes say to people, put on nasal cannula and entire CO2 if you have it, and slowly titrate up the oxygen if you think it's a respiratory issue until their entire CO2 starts going up. And when it starts going up, that's maybe where you slow down the oxygen, right? So listen, we all kind of say, well, you know, if they get really sick, then you should just intubate. Uh, well, of course, right? If they get really, really sick, 
but you have to keep in mind that some of these people look you walk in and they look terrible and they've always looked terrible for years right you just have to figure out and you know your tip is oh they have oxygen sitting next to them at the bedside oh you know the um the, the family member says he doesn't look any different than than uh you know than normal so take in the whole picture yeah take it take in the whole picture right and maybe it is just an ankle's brain and the pain is making them breathe a little faster you you read a lot. <laughs> well, I, I must say, with everything I do, I, I still enjoy um, I still enjoy getting home at some late hour at night and sitting on the couch and still like reading uh, articles. I mean, it just to me, it's fun. We all have different hobbies. So, so for a young medic or an EMT or young nurse or somebody that wants to get into the you know to the job, um, and they came to you and said, "Hey, Doctor Merlin, what should I be reading?" Yeah, well, first, I think you should be reading, right? I think you said this, and you, I think you owe it to your craft. You owe it to your, you know, whether it's your occupation or you just do this once every couple of months, you have to stay smart. And you can't stay smart based upon what some regulatory agency says you have to do. You have to stay smart because there's something every day. And that every day, if you're busy, I mean, we're all really busy, but five or ten minutes doing something to get yourself a little smarter. And you have to question stuff, right? In a polite way, you have to say, maybe my instructor is brilliant, or maybe they're not quite sure what they're talking about. Doesn't mean you raise your hand and say, I don't think we know what you're talking about, but you have to question it. You have to go home and like and, and read stuff. And you have to, when you see a patient, you have to go and read about that patient's condition, right? Because then you do the important thing, you put together the clinical picture with what's written, okay. right? And this was a thing I didn't do when I was younger. I, I, if, if I had, I mean, I would have been so much smarter if I had put together all those patients I saw when I was 16, 17, 18 years old with all these things with some, like, little paragraph I read. I mean, now you can just go on the Internet and you can just look up something, you know. You can type in something and you'll get, like, a perspective. If somebody has some condition, just, like, go read about it. You know, if they have leukemia and lymphoma, just go spend 30 minutes and, and your knowledge will build on over and over but it will build over like long periods of time and you connect that to what you see and you should always take five minutes if not much longer after every ems call and debrief debrief with a paramedic if you can debrief with a nurse if you can debrief with a doctor like i tell my doctors all this we actually give ceus every time we talk to uh um, paramedics on any scene right so we give them ceus i think this is important if people can, can swing this throughout the country just like take a five minute thing and say this is what I was thinking in my head right because I hear this all the time well this person did this and they don't know what they're talking about well why didn't you just say what were you thinking about and maybe the answer sometimes is going to be brilliant that's you know I always say you know right now I'm thinking blah 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 and they go you're thinking all those things and you're not saying anything yeah I'm thinking 20 different things that could be wrong with this patient this by the way is why doctors tend to do sometimes really bad hospital doctors tend to really be do really bad in a pre-hospital setting because they're thinking about all these incredibly rare diseases that can be causing this patient abdominal pain, whereas you can't do that. In the pre-hospital world, we learn to prioritize, sure, it's A, B, C, or D, the top five causes, and I really care right. about things that can kill the patient today. Right. What's going to kill the patient in the next 10 or 15 minutes? Yeah. What do I really have to worry right. about? And when there's time to have an academic discussion about the 100 things it could be, that's great. But in those moments of crisis, there is not. Right. In the moments of crisis, there is not. But, you know, to me... If somebody's an ankle sprain and you don't go and read about your anterior talofibrillar ligament, which is the most common, you know, ligament in ankle sprains, or your deltoid ligament, which is next, that's like lost. Your ankle sprain is lost. You're going to forget about it. And you say, why do I need to know learn about the ATF? I don't know. It's the number. It's the number one ligament that you know for ankle sprains. I don't know. It's not my textbook. So who cares? It's not your textbook, right? Can you imagine if you could remember that and like that built on over time over and over and over like how smart you would get just from like five minutes from an ems call what did you get out of that ems call you're entitled to get something out of it not just the patient right you as the ems provider that's an interesting perspective right the, the the patient owes you something right you don't just owe we owe the patient a lot right but the patient owes you something too and that's to further your knowledge right how to get smarter for the next call right that's what you have to do. You have to get smarter for the next call. Because just imagine this. You get somebody's house tonight, they could have anything wrong with them. It's not just me, you know. Like, I, I, I stay smarter so I can help peop, other people get smarter. Because if I treat 
one patient, you know, in an ER today, that, you know, that's just one patient. But yet if I teach people to treat lots of people and they're like in a house with all the things, these things going wrong, you know, they can take good care of that patient. I mean, that's very rewarding for me. I think that's a great place to end it. Okay. Uh, that, you know, this has been a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge. Um, you know, uh, it's been an amazing discussion. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Merlin for coming in uh, and taking the time to sit down with us. So there you have it. This was an amazing conversation uh, for me personally to have the opportunity to speak one-on-one with one of somebody I consider to be one of the thought leaders in emergency and pre-hospital medicine. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Merlin for taking the time to be with us. Uh, if you haven't seen this man talk or read some of the stuff that he's putting out, uh, you're definitely missing out. Um, again, you can find him on the social media. Everything's going to be on the uh, show notes. And uh, remember to listen, like, subscribe on all the podcasting outlets, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, and uh, check us out on social media. Uh Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So for The Overrun, this is Dan Schwester. Uh, Do better, be careful, and we'll see you next time.